Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the IC, uh, joined today by Alex Newman, back from Spain. How are you doing, Alex? I'm good, thanks, John. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. How's Spain? It is good. It's actually a bit rainier than uh, expected. Well, the rain yeah. in Spain falls mainly on the coast as well as the plain. <laughs> uh, and uh, Phil Oakley, how are you doing, Phil? Very good, thanks, John. Excellent. And we're going to talk today about your column, which is Howden's in the main kitchens. Uh, well, kind of. It's sort of a bit more dry than that, actually. Oh it's well, it's the way, it's you, it's the way you sell them. It's, uh, it's digging into the digging into some important numbers in in accounts and work. You know, learning from those numbers and. Uh, becoming more informed i just saw kitchens and, and i'm having a new kitchen installed at the moment it's, yeah it's just all i can think about is kitchens and the magazine of course <laughs> um alex we're going to talk about oil sure. today um and there is some context so we'll come back to to howden's obviously but yeah. uh, we're going to talk about oil because last week uh we never usually talk about tips on this podcast yeah for the obvious reasons don't want to give it away we don't want to give it away but we can talk about last week's sure and last week's was bp yeah and it was a sell yeah and it's quite contentious yes and, and the context is that you sent me an email talking about the oil sector generally, and we've had a big, long discussion this mm. morning about how we approach this sector, which, and it's a fascinating thing. Yeah. Uh, it's, we're going to get quite f- philosophical here, potentially. Potentially, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's contentious to, to start off with because, I mean, no surprise, a lot of people own shares in BP, uh, as they do Royal Dutch Shell. I mean, they're two of the biggest companies listed on L- London. Shell is the biggest. For various legacy reasons, particularly with Shell, Lots and lots and lots of investors hold them for their their dividends. When we were talking earlier, I, I mentioned that uh, my wife actually holds some yeah. Shell shares because she inherited some shares in BG. Yeah, and they because they were bought at the time of the privatisation flurry in the mid nineteen eighties. So yeah. a lot of people hold these shares who aren't actually probably active investors sure. either. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So just lots of people hold Shell. Yeah, and and you know it's always the dividends which uh, you know which is the big story with these with these stocks. And when the oil price crashed uh, a few years ago, the question was, uh, are they going to be able to hang on to that? They proved that they could. They have in many ways rebounded with the uh, with the oil price, but in a way that I, I think those last few years have almost obscured a bigger question about what is for many people a long-term holding and that's the viability of oil and gas companies you know as 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 a as a as a cornerstone feature of the of the global economy and specifically how fast and adept they are going to be uh, transitioning with the you know they always talk about the energy transition to cleaner fuels whether that's something they're they're capable of and uh, the bp cell pitch uh, piece was was largely my view that i think bp show that they're i think unprepared for what's coming in the next in the next decade so so, so in what in what respect are they unprepared i mean so shell we know i mean they're both big uh yep. hydrocarbon uh companies yeah um why is shell better uh why is shell better managing this transition than right. bp i mean it's 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 arguable whether both are managing it very well but i'd say the reason i think bp is managing it less well is that they are continuing to uh, grow their business they're continuing to add um uh, oil and gas to their their production. They've just bought this uh, large uh, uh, this this large a- uh, asset base from BHP in the US. Um, so they're going to be investing very very heavily there. I mean, the the nature of that deal means they're going to have to buy uh, a lot more in the US. Um, Is this uh, onshore? This is onshore fracking based. Yeah, basically, uh, assets. yeah, yeah okay. largely oil. 
At the same time, uh, there was a there was a, in the in the recent uh, midterms there was a vote in Washington State, which had put forward this idea of a, a a carbon price, where it was you know it was a small measure, local measure, to try and redress some of the issues with pivoting to a greener economy. BP say they are in favour of a carbon price. They, they actually lobbied quite heavily and threw a lot of money, as did several other. Um, oil and gas companies against you know in defeating this this proposal which which would imply that they're kind of trying to push for business as usual yes yeah i mean that's 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 my view that i mean they they have to be seen now to be taking i mean obviously they take climate change seriously they have to be seen to be part of the solution um i'm just not i'm not so sure i may you know many people say well surprise surprise i mean the oil and gas companies are going to want to continue doing what they're they're doing but we're getting to this slightly dissonant stage now i think where they are they're saying one thing but in 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 effect they're doing the other and i think bp more than shell is is guilty of that i think shell has the potential to be you know a major renewables leader i can't quite see it with bp uh, at the moment is that, is that because of the nature of bp as a company i mean it's always seemed partly. like a more aggressive company yes than, than shell yeah i think that's that's partly true um i would say that you know they are investing heavily in gas as are as is shell and and compared to the u.s peers you know they are they're doing a lot more on on, on alternative energies. Um, gas is important for the for the energy transition because it, in, particularly in the in the US, it has reduced their reliance on coal massively, which is uh, high intensity in terms of power generation. Yeah, in terms of power generation. Yeah. Yes, but I think in in general, BP's sort of continued focus on growth really really clouds the picture for what is going to be a very very tough. Um, decade i think for for the oil and gas majors and exploration when you're thinking about decades into the future is not something i think long-term investors should be wanting to see these companies putting their money into and, and that was kind of the 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 essence of the email that you said yeah. about how we think about the oil and gas sector and how obviously we guide our readers through what is what is could be a paradigm shift in, yeah. in, in kind of in the in the world's energy industry. Yeah, I mean, it, it is the great opportunity in, in, in investing. And unfortunately, I, I, I think uh, UK investors are left slightly uh, shortchanged when it comes to options for investing in in um, a renewables future. Mm. And you know, we talk about the rise of green bonds, but you know that's that's one particular kind of investment. That arguably, I mean, that BP and Shell are bond like. Uh, equities in that most people hold them for their dividend stream anyway so you could make the case for switching to green bonds if you know you were you considering divesting yeah i mean phil and i were talking about this on uh, on the way in uh, to, the, to the studio you know actually i mean we talk about you talk about these are equities bp yeah. shell they're equities um and we were actually talking about you know the nature of of, of these investments are i mean are they really equities uh, at all i mean they seem to be to be absolutely beholden these days to the the, the underlying oil price yeah and that's jumping around all over the place. So are they actually more commodity-like than bond-like or equity-like yeah. than than they they once were? Yeah, I I, I think arguably, and um, you know, you may every, you may want some commodities exposure in, in your portfolio. Arguably, that is that is a good thing to have. Um, I, I think the downside is that even if they you know even though they are leveraged to commodity prices, they're not always uh, oil and gas companies aren't always very good at providing the upside because it's it is such a tricky business really to make money in each field is very new so there's not a steep learning curve where you're going to be improving uh, and innovating your business you know decade after decade i mean they're very very good at what they do clearly you know they can you know they they supply our energy needs uh, uh, at present but um if you look back at the return on on 
on capital, you know, particularly over the last uh, half decade, it's really weak. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's the other argument, I'd say, you know, whether or not you investors are particularly interested in the, in, in ideas around uh, climate change and, and where these companies sit. I mean, they're, they're not great investments uh, on, on several key measures, really. Uh, you're talking about the broader sector rather than, yeah. than BP and Shell sure. specifically here. I mean, something you said earlier that I, I, I really resonated with me was that, you know, an equity. I mean, if you look at the, the history of, of, of uh, market returns, equities is a long, steady journey upwards. And when you yeah. buy an equity, you, you, you're essentially trying to buy into a company that can, can, can deliver some progress. And you just think that, Oil companies yeah. are perhaps facing the opposite. They, they are no longer companies that can make progress if they don't change what yeah, they I mean, do. Yeah, and they can't, they can't play the volume. This is, this is my sort of, um, one of my bare points with BP. It can't really play the volume game indefinitely, because, which is what they've done in, in, in decades past. Because, um, you know, this isn't, oil is not an, uh, a, grow, a growth market anymore. Okay, there are some projections in the next, in the next few years that... Um, that the oil will tick up ever, ever so slightly, but it's not the sort of growth that you would want to invest into. I would, I would argue. Mm, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think it's fascinating. I mean, the oil price has been jumping around yeah. all over the place. So yeah, and it's inherently inherently volatile and unpredictable. I mean, that's that's not a good. That's not a good thing either, really, for, for investors. I mean, one, one response I, I I put to you earlier, yeah. and actually, is, is illustrated by. Um, a story in the news section that you wrote this week uh, is that that you know you could actually see a lot uh, a lot fewer companies um, as as the sets consolidates yeah. and that and that's something we are seeing signs of. Yeah, but, uh, you know when you when you have quality companies like Faro Petroleum, which uh, this this week received its long awaited bid from uh, from DNO, uh, that's that seems to 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 speak to that that picture of of consolidation. Lower down the food chain, you know, I, I'm a sort of endlessly pitched companies to to, to write about, which uh, you know they all promise is essentially the same story, and that is amazing exploration um, promise in some some corner of some corner of the world, and you know it's it's largely a crapshoot. I mean, lots of exploration activity just ends up destroying destroying money. Um, and yeah, I mean, of course, you can catch your ten baggers, and they, you know, they turn out to be wildly, wildly profitable, and that that is the allure of the sector as well. We can't, you know, we can't deny that, and that is why it has an enormous retail investment following. But but it's it's guesswork a lot. Of the it time. is it is a lot of guesswork, and uh, you know, even if you are a geologist, you can't. There's nothing really that you can anticipate uh, in in a lot of the in a lot of the drilling that you, you're you're you know your company may be carrying out on your behalf so and, and i guess the big worry for a lot of these sort of junior explorers uh is that the the you know as as oil becomes or ceases to become the kind of uh the, the commodity that underpins the global economy yeah they're they're uneconomic yeah and you know when you talk about exploration um it's going to be it's going to be potentially a decade until you're going to see any any revenues from that if the field ends up becoming commercial if it ends up becoming a viable uh, project, um, yeah. So I mean, it's it, it's not only is it inherently volatile, it's increasingly difficult. I think, and I don't want to paint. A, you know, this is an incredibly bearish take. It suddenly seems on the sector, but um, uh, but it's but it sounds. But, but if you we, we, you know we're we're a very we're we're a long term investment magazine, and that's that is our that you know if we're taking long term views, I think. You have to look and, and, and see that oil and gas is increasingly, um, 
you know, a, a sector with big questions hanging over it. I suspect we'll be uh, talking about this much more in the yeah, future. I hope so. <laughs> so. And we haven't even talked about climate change, which yeah. I know was one of the, uh, I mean, the, the headline of the tip, BP Unprepared for Climate Crunch. Mm. I think I wrote actually at the end. Yeah. But actually, that's something that, that, you know, there is a lot of evidence for, but, but, but I know that you had some conversations around that with uh, Yeah, with I mean, some I don't, I don't want to get into the scientific debate because, you know, I, I mean, it's my view. There is, well, there isn't a science, you know, there's not a scientific debate. I think that's, that's it's the, the 97 to 99% of, of, of consensus. But um, Experts, though, what do they know? Well, oh, I don't want to get into that. Debate. <laughs> Let's stick with the same page. Uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, I mean, it's fascinating. I can't wait for us to, to, to explore this, this, uh, this, this subject further. Sticking with the same page, Thomas Cook is there. I know, Phil, uh, I just wanted to, to, to get your thoughts on this one because last week we briefly spoke about EasyJet and your view that it might be eyeing up the travel sector, uh, the, the, the packaged holiday sector as, as kind of the next, the next big engine of growth uh, there. Do they really want to get into this space, looking at Thomas Cook this week? Probably yes, because for EasyJet, if they can start selling hotels on top of um, airline seats, it is potentially quite quite a nice sort of add-on in terms of in terms of revenue, in mm. terms of spreading it over a, a, a fixed cost base. But, but the, the experience of Thomas Cook here suggests this is a really it is the, difficult industry. Yeah, it is difficult because. You have to match capacity, so the number of airline seats, number of hotel rooms, with demand. And this is where, if you look at tour operators over many, many years, uh, over the cycle, this is where they always come a cropper. Sooner or later, they get their maths wrong, or something happens which means that their plans are out of kilter. And they end up with too many hotel rooms, too many airline seats, and too few customers. And this is looks like what's got Thomas Cook into a mess here. It blamed a hot summer. Yeah, in I, the UK. I, I almost think that beggars belief. I, I've, I've because all... <laughs> because if, because if that's true, that says that Thomas. That to me says that Thomas Cook is allocating huge amounts of capacity on the basis of last-minute bookings. When, you know, you talk to your friends, talk to most people, the summer holiday is, you know, summer holidays are an important part of family life, and these are the sort of things that aren't made typically at the last minute. No, we, we plan a, we plan a year booked, in advance. Yeah, they're booked, you know, they're booked maybe, maybe around now, or, you know, uh, or even, even already they've been booked. I know we've booked our summer holidays for yeah, next yeah. year. But I think, you know, to say, to say that the hot summer stopped... As, as a reason for this profit warning, I I raise my eyebrows a lot here at, at, at that kind of comment because it it looks like a pretty lame excuse. Because if if that is the way that you are running your business on 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 pretty much on last minute bookings, then you're running your business the wrong way, as far as I can see. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've we've got the shares on a sell still. I mean, this company is not. It's had it's, it's been a constant problem area over. <laughs> over the years um the barriers barriers to entry in this market are actually quite low there's what we lo- talked about on the beach last week yeah there's loads of competition you know if you if you look at what the these this type of industry is it essentially it's a middleman mm. and it's booking it's booking sp- i mean i know some tour operators you know they own their own fleet of airplanes i think they, thomas cook does yeah and they and they some of them will own stakes in hotels, but essentially, what you're doing is you are 
you're just essentially a middleman for for booking space on airplanes and, and hotels and a few added extras. Now I'm not trying to belittle that. What what I'm trying to say is that you know that that does take an element of expertise and an effort to get that right so that the customer has a good experience. But what I'm saying is is that lots of people can do that. And it seems that you know, you've got EasyJet, you've got On The Beach, you've got the traditional tour operators, you've got a lot of these um, websites where you can just go on and go on a place like TripAdvisor. And the DIY holiday maker has been empowered by the internet. So this is, this is a very, very competitive market and it's very difficult to actually grow mm. and and plan and plan ahead with any certainty and i think that um again like oil actually you know where's where's your visibility in this kind of this kind of business well exactly i mean the, the paradigm shift in this industry is that you know is the internet and the thing the internet has enabled more than anything is the ability to cut out the middleman and it's empowered consumers and and this cannot be good news for for any type of company like this, um, I, you don't book through Thomas Cook, Alex, because I know you like your, your holiday destinations to be slightly more exotic, from what, from what I remember. I've, I've, I've never, I've never travelled with Thomas Cook. Either, no. <laughs> do they not do package holidays in Iran? Uh, no, they don't. Um, that was, yeah, I had to, yeah, that was a complicated arrangement. <laughs> yeah. um, let's stick with travel. I mean, actually, for what it's worth, Thomas Cook closed their shop in my high street quite recently. Perhaps a bit of scuttlebutt there. Co-op group still going. Co-op group also sells funerals. And funerals is something I know you looked at this week, Phil. Big news this morning. Yeah, I mean, just a bit of... I mean, Dignity, which is the the main play on this in the stock market, um, up until sort of a year or so ago, was almost seen as a bulletproof kind of business. And uh, I did do some analysis on this a while ago. And, it, and, and you look at how they were making money and they were essentially ramping up the price of funerals year after year after year and were making exceptional profits from it very very high profit margins um very very profitable business indeed and obviously dignity has had two main problems with this high profits have attracted competition particularly on the internet also from um the sort of cheap type, uh, cheaper type cremation type funeral. Funerals are expensive business. You know, people are spending anything from sort of three to six thousand pounds on a, on a funeral. They are in a very vulnerable position when they book them. Um, they're not probably thinking about getting value for money. They're probably in a distressed frame of mind, and the market arguably hasn't been working very well for consumers and that's essentially what's happened this morning where the competition and markets authority which announced a few months ago it was looking into this market has come out this morning and said that um it believes there it has lots of concerns particularly looking at the uh, the rate of increase in funeral prices against the the cost of living and the rate of increase in the cost of the funerals increased significantly more than rate of inflation about three times more than rate of inflation and there are spin-off issues in the document in terms of customer service um, regulation that type of thing and this is bad news for dignity which is already trying to fight 
the change in the market. It's offering its own type of um, sort of budget funerals, cremation-only funerals, and this can only really compound the problems that Dignity faces, in my view, because we've now got a major competition authority looking at this. It's going to become more visible in the eyes of the public as to what people are paying. Also, Dignity has had a significant sort of prepay funeral business. And I think a worry for me would be is that if you've prepaid for your funeral, and a lot of people have prepaid for their funeral, and you open your paper tomorrow morning and you read the business section and you realise there's an investigation to this, you might think, hold on a minute, I've been ripped off here. You want your money back. I want, I want a discount. And um, this is this is no surprise that dignity shares are off heavily today. Mm. Um, well, they, I mean, they've had a horrible year anyway. Well, they've it's... more than halved, but I think I think mid morning I looked at them, they were off sixteen percent. Yeah, and if you look at the average, I looked at this a few weeks ago. I'm not sure the average, but maybe the average revenue per funeral they're getting is sort of two thousand seven hundred on the sort of mainstream funerals, and then the sort of cheap cremation only is just over a sort of thousand pounds level there's a lot of margin here to be attacked mm. and, uh, and it's people like the co-op group that are attacking it actually co-op travel nice deals they have but but that's another that's an aside but yeah there are lots of people out there attacking it yeah. i'm not sponsored by the co-op by the way no, 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 no. It's, <laughs> it's, uh... so i think you know this is this is an issue that's going to cloud cloud investors via dignity for for a while now yeah i mean it, it was already working very hard to try and restore some of its battered reputation i think i think uh i think uh, it's probably un- uninvestable as they might say right now uh, who knows i mean you know the shares are down a lot this this this, this is a company that's got a massive footprint in the uk in terms of funeral provision along with along with the co-op but we don't know the impact of of, of what the cma uh review is likely to have no dignity though to be fair they may spin it in a positive positive way and that if you get regulation coming into this sector um it creates a barrier to entry and actually might be positive somewhere along the line Some, somewhere positive obviously what we don't know what's going to happen you know what's going to happen to the the pricing point mm. and that's probably what will continue to put investors off dignity for a while yeah absolutely um let's let's quickly turn to your column this week i, I thought it was about kitchens well i knew it wasn't really about kitchens you're, you're using howden's as a, as an example of a, a, a financial a method of financial analysis that, that we should perhaps pay more attention to and that is working capital kitchens are blinking expensive as well they are very expensive depending on what what you have they're just expensive you know if you have your granite worktops and stuff you've got to have a granite worktop that can can, you know (laughs) double your price it's still painful but um yeah the article is about um about working capital it's about things like stocks inventories by another name companies selling on credit and companies deferring their their bills and how these sort of three sort of numbers add up to a big a big number known as working capital and it it's the article's about getting you to focus on this so that you can actually learn more about how a business operates how much money for example it has to hold in stock so that it can serve its customers how much money 
um, it gives away in terms of credit, delaying delaying payment of its invoices, and how much it can offset that by delaying paying its bills to its suppliers. And this varies from industry to industry, from company to company. And generally speaking, the smaller the amount of working capital you have in the business, the better. And what I go on to say is how you can actually use this not only to learn about how a company operates, how its business model works, but how you can spot spot signs of trouble, particularly uh, on trade receivables, which are invoices that have been booked. So it's been it's it's about sales that have been booked, but you haven't been paid. And one of the ways that you can grow as a business is to offer more credit. And sometimes you can offer too much. And whilst it, whilst it allows you to paint a picture of growth, you can become too reliant on it, or you can actually, in the worst case scenario, just essentially be making up fictitious sales. Mm. I mean, in case of Howden's, Howden's is a trade-led business. Yeah. So if you want to buy a kitchen from Howden's, you have to do it through a, uh, a builder. A yeah. kitchen installer, whatever you want to call them, um, and presumably they have they have quite chunky trade accounts with Howden's. Yeah, how do, is is Howden's good at managing this? Yeah, I mean Howden. Howden, you would I, think so because it's been yeah. around a while. So I, so Howden makes um, kitchen cabinets. That's its main manufacturing activity, and it also supplies all the other bits that go in your kitchen, like your sinks, your appliances, and that kind of thing. So Howden has to hold a lot of stock either at its manufacturing plant or at its its depots, because it doesn't want its builders turning up saying, I want this, this and this, and they say, sorry, I haven't got it, so I'll go somewhere else. It also sells on credit. So the builders, one of the big attractions for Howden is that it gives um, its customers about eight weeks credit. So the, the builder can come in and it can buy its kitchen, do the job for its customer, get paid before he has to pay Howden. So Howden has to manage two main things, really, which is stock and its trade receivables. I would imagine then the biggest risk there is that somebody who has balls a kitchen on credit doesn't pay their bill. Correct. And generally this happens at, at times of distress. And one of the things you can look at in, in the accounts of a company is you can look at the bad debts and then you can also look at um, the debts that are owed that are overdue. And one of the things that I've mentioned in this article and also when I looked at Howden's a few weeks ago is that the debts, the, the number of debts that are overdue has, has actually gone up a little bit. It's about 25% of trade, trade receivables at the end of last year. Now, those debts haven't gone bad, but it's like everything in, in analysis of numbers. It's the trend. And the trend on stock and on receivables is going against Howden. And it's just something to keep an eye on. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And another company you're keeping an eye on for much the same reasons is Fevertree. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people, probably a lot of listeners, you know, will like Fevertree. And I think there's a lot... Well, they wouldn't like the share price over the last few weeks. No, I mean, the pretty, shares... pretty horrible. I think the shares are down... I think in the last 10 weeks, the shares are down about 42%. It's been ugly. Um, but they still trade on a forward price earnings multiple of nearly 50. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago when I wrote about um, cash flow analysis. 
Um, but it's also very, very applicable to this article about trade receivables. And um, I, I worry, I think the trade receivables as a percentage of sales, which went from has gone from about 24%, which is a high number anyway, to nearly a third, 33% over the last two, three years. I, I've banged on about this probably for the last 12 months, either in print or uh, investor shows or on podcasts. And I just think that, the one thing that the one thing actually got me thinking about about this even more this week was was actually looking at Diageo last week. Now, Diageo obviously is one of the major uh, gin producers. Got some fantastic gin brands, and gin is a big thing in the UK, but it's not massive really anywhere else, as far as I can see. And certainly, if you look at Diageo's US results, gin isn't really a big factor for them there. Mm as far as I can see, compared with things like bourbon and vodka. Now, the whole thing about Fever Tree is that a lot of its growth has been very UK-biased, and the bull case is about the American market. So I think I'm not seeing a lot of evidence that, you know, that the, that it's, that the American market is supportive to tonic water or cola. But this business is very dependent on the UK and maybe, maybe very dependent on offering more generous credit terms to grow. Is, is, that, is that offering credit terms in the UK or potentially offering them to uh, customers in the US to try and accelerate the growth of it? That we don't know. But given that the bulk of its sales are coming from the UK, uh, it's probably not unreasonable to think that a lot of its credit has been, has been UK-based. So uh, essentially what you're worrying about then is that is this company essentially buying, buying growth? Um, there's no doubt there's a gin boom going on, and that's very supportive. The question is, is, is how sustainable that boom is, and how, how Fever Tree has been leveraging credit to perhaps maximise that. Mm. And therefore, you ask the question, how sustainable is that? And I, don't, I know there was a lot of nervousness a few weeks ago about some industry report that the the growth of fever tree had sort of come down quite a lot. Now, time will tell whether that is a definitive trend or not. But all I would say is that, that along with the fundamentals of you know the sustainability of tonic water in the UK, I, I just think this is another sort of mind your eye signal on on fever tree. If it's having to con- continually grow its receivables faster than its sales. You can only do that for so long. Yeah. So uh, forget this. I mean, don't forget the story. It's interesting. Don't forget the narrative, but look look behind it. Yeah. And it may be fine. It may be fine. It's not. It's not about scaremongering. It's about just sort of how you can use this kind of information to think. Oh, okay. That's something I need to keep an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Phil. Alex, I'm going to let you round off uh, this afternoon's podcast uh, with a, a very unusual departure for you. <laughs> it's as soon as, as soon as we're getting to that seasonal uh, you know, time of year. Um, Christmas cards. Yes, Christmas cards and wrapping and all associated <laughs> buntings, which I was actually sent uh, a bag of. Um, well, I as I was in the charity box. Well, there we go, yeah. Uh, I, I will do. Um, uh, as I was on the phone to the company on the results day, which... Um, was sort of eerily ti- eerie timing, but um, that you know that's to say nothing against the uh, the you know the, the company's performance, IG design that is, um, uh, which has been it's been incredibly strong in the in the in 
in the last few years. I was going to say that's that's an unusual looking share price this this year. Yeah, I, it goes the right way. Yeah, but I mean, I, I mean, in I mean, if you look look back at their earnings growth in the uh, over the last four four to five years, it's been it's been particularly strong. Mm. Um, in that in that period, they've also um, I suppose it's the opposite effect to, to uh, Fever Tree that they've they're now less and less reliant on the on, on the UK, and they've 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 broadened out. They're now quite a, a global business. Um, they sit in a nice because they they manufacture the. The, the gift wrapping and, and celebratory goods uh they sit in an, in a nice position in the in that they can manage their their relationships with retailers and pick the pick the winners sorry to intervene that that probably helps them in terms of the whole, the whole trade uh credit arrangements if, if you pick strong retailers if you can choose strong partners then that's not a problem yeah you'd you'd, you'd, you'd hope so and um uh, but yeah, I mean now you know their 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 focus seems to be more and more on M and A, and that's uh, you know if they're going to keep up their the the growth rate that they've shown in the in the last couple of years, that's probably what they're going to need to um, uh, need to do. I mean the uh, I mean so it's clearly a, a very well managed company, and the shares of you know they've attracted the premium uh, for that. But you know I think that they're so, I think they're up to around nineteen or twenty twenty times. Um, Ford earnings fairly when, punchy. When, fair, it's fairly punchy. For, I think for a now uh, a, a gift wrappings business, which is now a gl- global economic growth story, mm. uh, arguably. So, um, so yeah, I, I think we we have have previously had them on a buy. Um, it looked a little toppy uh, for me, but then gift wrapping isn't my uh, traditional sector, so it may be I may be missing some uh, hidden uh, ballpoint, which. Um, Bar yeah. humbug Bar is humbug. all I say. <laughs> no, thanks. It's, it's an interesting company. It's kind of... It just feels like it's one of those ones you don't really pay attention to. Yeah. Um, it's wrapping paper. Having said that, I paid £7 for two cards the other day. There seems to be no upper limit to the price you can pay for a greasings card these days. Yeah, indeed. It's margins. ridiculous. There'd be margins. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Thank you, Alex. Um, as I say, we're probably going to delve, delve deeper into this oil story uh, as the, the months and years progress. I, I, I think your, your rights have highlighted this. It's a big one. Paradigm shift, as I said. Uh, thank you, Phil. Uh, lots more in the magazine this week. We haven't talked about the cover feature. James Norrington has rounded up, uh, I think, something you, uh, uh, one of your ideas, Alex, and it's a good one. Uh, look at what hedge fund managers are saying because they, they publish letters quarterly to yep. their investors. And there's some really interesting insights from, from those, particularly at this point in, uh, in, in what's going on in the markets. The second feature actually is very unusual for us. We, I mean, we're a DIY investment magazine. We actually appreciate that some, sometimes you need an advisor. How you choose that advisor is still a bit of a mystery. We hopefully shed some light on that uh, in this issue. Lots of results, lots in the personal finance fund section, which they will talk about tomorrow on their podcast. Uh, all the usual tips and comments. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Alex, again. Thank you, Phil. Uh, letters from America, market views from the heart of Wall Street. And we will be back again next week.